Turn with me, please, in your Bibles to the book of Revelation and chapter 3 as we continue in our exposition of our Lord's address to the church at Philadelphia. We titled the messages, Dear Philadelphia, as our Lord Jesus instructed John to tell the angel of the church there to write these things, believing that the angel was most likely the pastor or the elder there who would speak to the congregation, since uh, angels don't normally speak to congregations, and the word literally means messenger, it is more likely that he was talking not to a supernatural being, but rather to the one who was the pastor of the church at Philadelphia. And he says to him, as we saw in the opening messages, this is the great God. The one who is addressing the church calls himself, in verse 7, He who is holy, He who is true, He who has the key of David. He is the priest, the prophet, and the king. The Holy One. The pure, spotless priest who offered Himself. He is the prophet, the one who is true. He is the embodiment of all truth. And He is the one who has the key of David. He is the king, the priest, Prophet and King is the one who is addressing the church. And he says to this church in verse 8 that he knows that they have little power. We talked about the fact that the church there in Philadelphia was likely a small church. They had problems with earthquakes there. And there were not likely a lot of people in that town and likely not many in that church. So we can relate. It was very, most people believe it was a small congregation, a small church. Yet, he says to them in verse 7 again, that this great God who is holy and true, who is king, is the one who opens doors and no one can shut, and shuts and no one opens. He is God, and he opens doors for his church. He opens doors for the angels, the ministers, the pastors of churches. And as such, through the last several weeks, we have been considering various men who in the past God has blessed by opening doors in an unusual way. We've talked about missionaries who were blessed of God in even supernatural ways as He opened doors for them to bring the Gospel to strange places. And today I want to talk to one who was definitely in a strange place. He was in Connecticut. And then later in in an even more strange place, Massachusetts. This man that we want to bring to your attention today is a hero of our faith in America. He was born in East Windsor, Connecticut on October 5th, 1703. He is widely regarded as America's most important theologian as well as being one of America's greatest intellectuals. And yes, he was a Christian. Can you imagine those two terms being put together, a Christian theologian and an intellectual. 
They're mutually exclusive in our day in the eyes of the world. But that's not true. Most Christian pastors worth their salt ought to be, should be, and are intellectuals. Trained, studied, knowledgeable of the Scriptures, knowledgeable of history, knowledgeable with some kind of a working knowledge of the Greek and the Hebrew. Men of God should be men of the book who understand and are able to study. Now, this one, Jonathan Edwards, was unique. He was special. And God opened special doors for Jonathan Edwards. He was the son of Timothy Edwards, who was the pastor of the local church there in Connecticut in East Windsor. And Jonathan was their fifth child of eleven. He was their fifth child of eleven and the only boy. Jonathan Edwards grew up with ten sisters. Can you imagine that? They they loved their brother and they took care of him in a lot of ways as I, I don't have time to go into all of that. But here's a man who was extremely blessed of God intellectually. In 1716, now I mentioned to you that he was born in 1703. In 1716, at the ripe old age of 12, he entered Yale. Now, to be fair, he was almost 13. But Jonathan Edwards had a deep interest in science and was fascinated by the discoveries being made by such men as Isaac Newton. On February 15, 1727, Edwards was ordained as the minister at Northampton, Connecticut. That same year, he was married to Sarah Pierpoint. You might have heard that name, Pierpoint, now and then. Her father was the main founder of Yale. But this woman, Sarah Pierpoint, was most importantly, besides being from a great family, a very godly woman. She loved Jesus. She loved the Gospel. And she was an inspiration to her husband, Jonathan. That's a great lesson for all you ladies. Great inspiration to her husband. She had a cheerful disposition. Sort of a, a, a help to Jonathan Edwards who struggled with that once in a while. But she had a cheerful uh, disposition. And the Edwards were also blessed with 11 children. Great family. There's a lot of books written about Jonathan Edwards. And you could find a lot more than what I can tell you in these brief few moments. But they had 11 children. It was a great family. But now in all things and in all ways, Jonathan Edwards was known as a man who had unwavering adherence to God's Word and sound historical theology. He held the Reformation theology to his toes. And he preached it. And he gave it to the church there where he was the pastor. He brought forth this preaching and God's Word to these people. And he recognized and realized 
that it had to be God's Word because He knew that in and of Himself He was worthless and unable to change anybody's heart, to change anybody's life, or to do anything for anyone because He was just a man. And He said of Himself that He was unable to do anything without the help of God. He knew and He acknowledged His own weakness, His own frailty, and His own sin. As all Christian men and all Christian pastors should. However, now I want to just focus for a few moments on the doors that God opened for this man. You know His name. You've heard Jonathan Edwards. In fact, even in secular schools, they've heard of Jonathan Edwards. God made this man mighty and useful in His kingdom as He opened doors for him. In 1733, under His preaching, and many people, many historians, attribute this largely to Him and to His preaching, revival began to spread through New England. As He preached God's historic gospel, God's truth, God's theology to the people that were there in His congregation and to other congregations where He was privileged to speak, He brought the truth and God used the truth and revival began to spread. Whitfield was involved in that. And it became known as what we call today America's Great Awakening. As men and women were convicted of their sins and their lostness and cried out to God for mercy. It wasn't just, come on down the aisle and God will make you better and good. He preached powerful messages on sin and God and the glory of God and the lostness of man and the necessity to repent. And people were genuinely converted. So much so that some of the more seemly establishments in that area began to close for lack of business. As people were being saved and no longer uh, going to some of those Places like the bars and the uh, pubs and things like that. They were living for Jesus. And it was ruining the economy. So some people were very upset about the Great Awakening. But this is what took place under the preaching of Jonathan Edwards. In 1741, it wasn't in his home church, it was in the city of Enfield. He preached one of the most famous sermons ever. Ever. And if I tell you the title of the sermon, you'll know it. Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Imagine that. Does anybody know the titles of my sermons ever anywhere? I don't think so. But after all of these years, hundreds of years, people know the sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. As he laid out to those people that there is one thing that keeps them from the fires of hell. And it is the very hand of God. And all he has to do is open his hands and they would fast fall into fiery hell. 
sinners in the hands of an angry God. People became so convicted. People became so aware of their own lostness and their precarious state. Many, many were saved. His church grew under His ministry. His church flourished. God used His messages and uses that message to this day as people still read it. God allowed him to minister to multitudes and hundreds were saved and it's because of the great awakening many say that America became America. Because after that we went on to the revolution and decided that we needed to stand on our own with religious freedom and honoring God from this man. Talk about God opening doors. So, How does his church reward him? In the years 1749 through 1750, his congregation overwhelmingly voted him out. Voted him out. They kicked him out. I can't get into the controversies that were involved, but he was on his own. He went to Scotland. God used him in Scotland for a while. And he again saw a great ministry, a great door of opportunity there. But he came back to the States and this is when he went to uh, Massachusetts. He went to Stockbridge, Massachusetts and became the missionary to the Housatonic Indians. I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that right, but I think it's Housatonic Indians. And he was a missionary to the Indians. And he wanted to help the Indians and he preached the gospel to the Indians and he wanted to help them with their health issues as well. So they began to develop a, uh, an inoculation for smallpox and to show that this inoculation for smallpox would work. He was inoculated and died from smallpox as a result of the inoculation in the year of 1758, only 54 years of age. But here's a man who many historians focus on as the catalyst to the great awakening. Used by God. A great door that God opened for this man. What an amazing testimony. And we here say as men who look at the Scriptures and see from this text that it is God who opens doors. We pray for our church which has little power, that the God who has unlimited power would open doors for this church. But now I actually want to study the Scriptures and not just a biography. So let's look at the text a little further. Because we noted that Jesus points to at least two reasons for which He opened the doors for the church in Philadelphia. He says in verse 8 that they had little power, yet they have kept My Word. You've kept My Word. And we took several weeks of looking through the Scriptures because we say often, you know, we say, oh, we keep God's Word. Well, what does that mean? And we spent several weeks looking at what it means to keep God's Word. And the next thing He points to, and what we began to look at last Lord's Day, is that they have not denied My name. 
We talked a little bit about what it means, what the word, what the terminology is in the Greek to deny His name and saw that it has to do with rejecting, suppressing the truth even as we see in Romans chapter 1 where people know the truth but they suppress it in unrighteousness. And this is a denying then of the God that they know to be God in the lives that they lead. They lead a sinful life rejecting what they know to be the truth of God's Word. But then we went on to consider the significance of His name. And we looked at the passage there in Exodus chapter 3 where Moses comes and stands before the burning bush. And God says it is holy ground. Take off your sandals. And then proceeds to reveal Him in a personal way to Moses. Because Moses said, when you send me to these people in Egypt, they're going to say, who sent you? What shall I say? And God says, I am who I am. Tell them that the I am has sent you. Yahweh, sometimes translated Jehovah. And we saw from the Scriptures several things from that name. What it actually means. It tells us that God is the eternal God. It tells of His eternal existence. I am who I am. I always have been and I always will be. The eternal existence of God. It tells us of His unchangeableness. I am who I am. I've always been like this. I always will be like this. And it also tells of His personalness. This was a personal disclosure to Moses and to the people of Israel that they had never had before. He had never revealed Himself in this way, by this name, to the nation of Israel until now. Or to Adam and Eve. Or to anyone until now. It was a personal revelation. And then it tells of His faithfulness. Because He changes not, He keeps His promises. And even in that text, He says, because I am who I am, I will keep my covenants. Now today, I want to go on to see what our God was saying to the church in Philadelphia as you have not denied My name. Because we saw that denying the name of God is to deny God Himself. And I want to see how that affects and, and actually relates even to keeping His ways. In my own personal devotions, I was reading this the other day. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 28. Deuteronomy chapter 28. Moses is giving the nation of Israel the uh, blessings and the curses, as it were. You keep my law, there's blessings. You deny my law, you deny my ways, There's cursings. He says in verse 58 of Deuteronomy chapter 12, If you are not careful to observe all the words of this law which are written in this book to fear this honored and awesome name of the Lord your God, then the Lord will bring extraordinary plagues. Okay? So he's saying, keeping His law, keeping His way is honoring the awesome name, Yahweh, your God. So, denying His law, denying His way, denying His Word would be dishonoring the name Yahweh. 
So let's just take this for a moment and apply it back to the church in Philadelphia where Jesus stands before them and says, you have not denied my name. In the sense, as you add it to that they have kept his word and not denied his name, it shows that they were also people who kept his ways, who kept his law, who were faithful to the word that they kept. They had the truth. They had the way. They had the things of God, the word of God, as it was brought to them in the Old Testament. And then... As Paul would come and preach, or as John would come and preach, or as one of the other apostles would come and preach, they would keep the law, they would keep the way, and in that sense, they were honoring the name. They were not dishonoring His name. So, honoring the laws of God and the ways of God honors the name of God. Now, let's take this into the New Testament and see this great name attributed to another. In the Gospel of John, please turn to chapter 6. I've already said that I can only touch on these things. There's so much. I have to fly low, as it were, as we look at the Scriptures. Any one of these passages would be a series of messages in and of themselves. But I don't want to miss them. I don't want you to miss them. I want us to understand what Jesus is saying as He addresses that church in Philadelphia and says, you have not denied My name. Well, what is His name? Yes, His name is Jesus. There are a lot of men named Jesus. He's a lot more than any of them. And here we see in John's Gospel in chapter 6, our Lord giving one of these great what we call the great I am statements to those who were there. Ego in me. I am. And here he says in verse 35 of John chapter 6. We'll back up to verse 34. And they said therefore to him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. He said to them that uh, the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life. To the world, he said, they said, Lord, give us this bread. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But don't miss the fact that he says, I am. How did God reveal him to the nation of Israel when you go back to those that are enslaved in Egypt? Tell them, I am. Am. What is your name? I am. And what does Jesus say? I am the bread of life. Now you might think that I'm exaggerating. You might think that, well, you're just reading too much into the text. Well, if you look down a little bit further to verse 41, the Jews therefore were grumbling about him because he said, I am. The bread of life. You see, they knew what he meant. They knew what he what it meant for Jesus to stand there and go, Ego in me! I am! As God revealed Himself as the great I am. The Jews knew what that was. The Jews knew what that meant. And here Jesus is saying, I am the bread of life. 
I am God. He is equating himself to be God. And the Jews understood that. Isn't it interesting that right here in the Scriptures, the Jews knew exactly what Jesus was doing. The Jews understood it. The Jews got it. Isn't it odd that the Mormons don't get it? That they don't think Jesus was divine? No matter how much Glenn Beck says he's a Christian, the Christ that he worships isn't the Christ of the Bible because Mormons don't believe that Christ was divine. Mormons don't believe that Jesus was the divine Son of God. He was a God, but He was not divine, according to them. And to Muslims, or to the nation of Israel today. They deny the deity of Christ. But this is what He claimed. Do you believe He was who He claimed to be? Because He claimed to be God. I am the great I am. Look at another in chapter 8. And there's no mistaking this. John chapter 8. Look at verse 12. Again, therefore, Jesus spoke to them and said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Again, what a great passage. It could be sermons upon sermons right here. The light of life. I am. You know, I, I go through in all of these I have capitalized the M. It is I am the name of God. I am who I am. I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. Now, once again, I am not exaggerating. For as you go on, even in this passage, look down to verse 54 of John chapter 8. Jesus answered, If I glorify Myself, My glory is nothing. It is My Father who glorifies Me, of whom you say He is our God. And you have not come to know Him, but I know Him. And if I say that I do not know Him, I shall be a liar like you. I love that. You're of your father the devil. He's a liar. And if I say I don't know Him, then I'm a liar like you. Jesus was right in their face. Jesus was direct. Jesus told it like it was. Forgive me if I do it. Forgive me if I name names. Jesus named names. He told them they were liars. He says, I know Him and I keep His Word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see My day and he saw it and was glad. Oh, the Jews therefore said to him, You are not yet fifty years old and you have seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. What do you think He meant? He wasn't just saying, I am the light or I am the bread here. He's just saying, I am. And they knew exactly what he meant. The Jews, therefore, they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Why did they pick up stones to stone him? Because he made himself out to be God by saying, I am. 
This is the name of your Savior. As we saw last week, as Jehovah God stood before Moses and said, I am who I am. Your Savior Jesus stands before you in the Scriptures and says, I am. He is God. He is divine God. Come as a man. And now a special one. Look over a few more pages to John chapter 10. Well, this isn't the special one, but they're all special. They're all special. John chapter 10, he mentions two right here in verses 9 through 11. Verse 9, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he shall be saved and go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I come that they might have life and that they might have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I am the door. I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. And that leads us to that special one I was referring to in the next chapter, chapter 11. Lazarus has died. Jesus our Lord comes to Mary and Martha. He has been dead four days. Martha in verse 21 says to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother shall rise again. Martha said to her, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection on the last day. What does Jesus say to her? I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe what? Do you believe that I am God and can raise the dead? People, this is what you are resting your entire lives on. Do you believe that Jesus is I am God. And that this great I am God, this great Savior who is the I am God, do you believe that He will raise you again from the dead? If that's not what we believe, what are we doing here? We are here worshiping the God who saved us because we believe that He is God and that He will raise us from the dead. Because as God, and only as God, He is able to do so. And that's why He's the only one we give glory to. That's why He's the only one we give worship to. That's why we know that He is who He said He was. He is God and He does raise men from the dead. And that's what He goes on to prove right here in this chapter. It's one thing to just say, I am the resurrection. But in a few verses, he goes on to say, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus does. He proves that he is, I am. He proves that he is the very Son of God incarnate. As God revealed himself as I am who I am, Jesus reveals himself to us as I am. 
as God is able to raise men from the dead, Jesus says, I am God. I will raise you from the dead. Jesus proves it by raising Lazarus from the dead. And he too was raised from the dead. Not many days forth from here. Proving that he is the great I am of the gospel. He is the one who is able to save us, to raise us, because he is I am. He is Jehovah God. And he alone is Jehovah God. But how can that be? Doesn't the scripture say there is only one God? How can you have Jesus being God and God the Father being God? That's two gods. And then you say the Holy Spirit is God. That's three gods. No, no. One God who in the Scriptures reveals Himself as three persons. Look at Philippians, please. Chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. You look down at verses 6-8 through and we see that the Apostle Paul is speaking about our Lord Jesus Christ who, although He existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men and being found in the appearance as a man, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Paul is talking about Jesus And right here in these just three verses, he speaks of him having been in glory, leaving glory and becoming a man and going to the cross. All of that is incorporated here. And some look at this passage and say, look, it says he emptied himself. And that means that he isn't God. He is he emptied himself of His deity. He emptied Himself of being God. He came from the Father. He came from glory. He humbled Himself and became a man. Imagine that. Imagine where Jesus lived in glory and then He comes to earth as a man. He humbled Himself. That's what He's talking about as far as emptying Himself. It has nothing to do with Him giving up any bit of His deity. As man, Jesus did not diminish His divine nature one bit. Keep your finger here in Philippians and just turn a few pages to Colossians chapter 2. Going right back to Philippians. But look at Colossians chapter 2. Look at verse 9. For in Him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Deity in bodily form. That's Jesus. True God, true man. Back to Philippians chapter 2. He was true God and true man. And so what Paul is talking about when he says he emptied himself is that now when you look upon Jesus, the man, as people did all throughout Palestine for almost 33 years, they looked upon him and despite some of the drawings and the paintings, he didn't have a halo over his head. It wasn't some gold thing up around here going like that. They say, oh, look, it must be God. No, he looked like a man. He was, as the text says, 
in the appearance of man. That's how he emptied himself. That's how he humbled himself. Remember the transfiguration? Where just for a moment, a bit of his glory comes through to the disciples that were there with him on the Mount of Transfiguration. And they see just a bit of the splendor and the glory and the majesty of who this really is. The incarnate Son of God. He reveals Himself just a little to them. And John goes on to describe them even more fully in Revelation chapter 1 as he sees Him in glory and splendor in the heavenly places. But to most people, in fact all other people, all of the time while Jesus walked among men, He looked like a man. And we don't really know what He looked like. He was humbled. And His form was not something different or not something special. I've heard some people say, well, I bet He was about six foot eight and really stood out in the crowd and people could really tell. We don't know. I will say this, He didn't have long hair. We don't know what Jesus looked like. And the Shroud of Turan, whatever it is, is not a replica of Jesus. I'm glad it makes people think, though. But we don't know what Jesus looked like. It would have been wrong for him to have long hair. Let me just make that clear. That's why we know he didn't. So here's our Lord Jesus who humbles himself and comes in the form of a man. Now, let's see what happens. He, he comes in the form of a man. You don't see his glory. He was, his glory was veiled. And yet the God man left glory came and was obedient to the death of the cross. And because of that, verse 9, God, it says, therefore, and whenever there's a therefore, you ask, what is it therefore? It connects back to what He has just said. He emptied Himself and became obedient and went to the cross. Therefore, because He came, because He gave His life, God highly exalted Him. Now, it's not like He wasn't exalted before. It's just that in this new way, as He has now come and accomplished the redemption of man, God has highly exalted Him. And how does He do that? And bestowed on Him the name which is above every name. My dear brethren in Philadelphia, you have not denied my name. That name which he was highly exalted with from God. God bestowed on him the name which is above every name. Jesus, the great I am. Jesus, the one who we love. Jesus, our Savior, the one that we worship. The name which is above every name. This is the name that Philadelphia would not deny. The one who came from heaven as God the One who gave His life in obedience on the cross. The One who redeemed them from their sins. And they would not 
deny His name. I cannot help but think of how many people all around this world, while in this time zone now, will gather together in places called churches and think that they are worshiping God when in effect they are really denying the name. For they do not come in reverence. They do not come in awe. They do not come in wonder of this holy God and all that He has done. They trip lightly into His presence. They trample underfoot His Word, ignoring it for the most part, shunning theology, preaching, or I should say, saying messages that take 10 minutes or 15 minutes, getting out of the way their religious obligation and going back home as fast as they can or as quickly as they can to the local restaurant for lunch, out to the golf course, out to the Gulf of Mexico, when in reality, that name which is above every name should be approached every time we gather with reverence and worship and honor for who He is. Now notice what the text goes on to say. That that name of Jesus, that at that name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Now you remember the little tune, the little passage, the chorus that even children sing. And they sing it and they go, Every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. What do they say? Every knee shall bow. What does that text say? Every knee should bow and every tongue should confess. And when you look at the word in the Greek, it is the word kompto. It is a verb to bend the knee or to bow. And it is in the aorist active tense. And the best way, therefore, to describe it would be every knee should be bowing. Every tongue should be confessing. Certainly it has a future reference. Every knee will one day bow. Every knee will bow, every tongue will one day confess. But that's not really what this text is saying. This text is saying right here, right now, people all over the world should be bowing before this great God who is King of kings and Lord of lords. This is the Jesus of the Bible. Every knee should be bowing. Every tongue should be confessing. Now, if I say those things to you, should be bowing, should be every tongue, should be confessing. What would you think that would be? Worship. We bow before Him. Our tongues praise Him. Worship 
of the living God, even what we do here, should involve our knees bowing in reverence and our tongues praising, confessing Him as Lord. This is not a secular endeavor where you put in your time. This is a spiritual encounter with the living God where we bow before Him in reverence and in awe. And when we worship Him from our tongue, we don't just go, try, try to sing and just go through the motions. We sing from hearts. And I know sometimes they pick hymns that you don't know. But even still, there should be the act of attempting to bring from our hearts praise to this God who is the great I Am, who has the name which is above every name, the name of Jesus. We should be bowing. Our tongues should be praising Him. This is why we meet. This is what we do. All men should right now be bowing to this God. And you know what this tells us? What was the church in Philadelphia doing? Bowing. Worshipping. They would not deny the name. And so the opposite of not denying the name or the positive aspect would be praising the name, exalting the name, bowing before the name. And this is what they were likely doing. And this is what we should be doing as a people and as a church. When we gather together, I hope and I pray that the night before, that the day before, you are praying, God, let me honor Your name in worship tomorrow. That when we come, I don't care what anybody else is doing, my heart will be bowing before You. My heart will be praising You. My lips will be praising Your name. That great name. The great I Am. The great name above every name, which is Jesus. Will we do it? I pray we will. Let's pray.